Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. When will we get back to normal? It's a familiar refrain these days, but some science and health experts say we need to let go of that way of thinking. Ed Young covers science for The Atlantic. His latest story is called Our Pandemic Summer. In it, he writes, there is no going back. The only way out is through, past a turbulent spring, across an unusual summer, and into an unsettled year beyond. He's also concerned that the country isn't ready for the next pandemic and writes about what the U.S. must do to avoid the worst-case scenario. Ed Young, welcome to Reset. Hi, thanks for having me. So back in 2018, you wrote a story for The Atlantic arguing that America wasn't ready for the pandemic that would eventually come. You Mm -hmm. wrote that the country was stuck in a cycle of panic and neglect. Unpack that for us. America, like many other countries, tends to rise to a challenge when a new disease hits. But once the crisis abates, um, a lot of the attention and investments that were paid slip away as well. And this cycle has just repeated itself again and again. Now we're facing the COVID-19 pandemic and the U.S. is experiencing uh, the worst outbreak in the world. How are we doing right now? The problem right now is that the U.S. is only in round one of this current crisis and that once um, cases and deaths start to fall, we're going to um, further phase later on in the year where the virus might rebound if we relax on the control measures that are currently in place. And my worry now is that this panic neglect cycle that I've talked about is going to accelerate and that we are going to go into neglect before the panic bit is truly over. And that's why in our pandemic summer, I urge people to recognize that this is a long running problem that is going to be with us well beyond the spring and into the rest of this year and beyond, that we need to steel ourselves nationally, financially, medically, and psychologically for that prospect. How would you compare the U.S. response to other hard-hit countries like China and South Korea? Places like um, South Korea in particular um, have really pulled out all the stops and and used what are actually quite traditional public health measures, um, mass testing, um, tracing contacts um, to try and slow the um, the spread of the pandemic. And by and large, South Korea has been a, a tremendous success story. Um, the U.S. has not come close to matching the scale of testing that South Korea has managed. And we're having delayed in uh, having sort of lost time in our ability to roll out widespread testing. We're now in a position where it's going to be incredibly difficult to catch up again. And I think that's a hard reality for people to cope with because our assumption is that the US being a rich and powerful and biomedically prosperous nation, that once we've identified a problem, we can easily fix it. But we're now entering a phase of this pandemic where there's so much demand for the same chemical reagents, the same swabs for for doing these tests around the entire world, that um, supply chains cannot meet the growing demand. And we might not be able to get to a place where widespread testing is possible in the near term future. And we're going to need to plan around that. What are some specific steps the U.S. can take in the coming months to to try to stave off the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic? 
it needs to improve its testing capability. Um, it needs to ensure that hospitals are um, equipped with as many protective supplies as possible. Those are also running out. And I think one of the crucial steps is to really boost its public health infrastructure. So it needs people who can um, find, find infected people, trace their contacts, and just get a grip of where the virus is. That infrastructure is taxed um, because of um, a long running period of disinvestment and a loss of jobs at local, state, public health levels. It's hard to address those problems that shortfall very quickly, but one can, for example, train volunteers in some of the basics of things like contact tracing, and there are plans afoot to do that already um, in places like Massachusetts. And I think above all else, we need a coordinated response at the national level. Um, we need leadership to make sure that everyone is doing the same thing. And currently, that leadership is absent. Well, as you say, governors have clashed with President Donald Trump over the nation's response to COVID-19. Here in Illinois, Governor J.B. Pritzker has been vocal about his criticism of the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. How does the relationship between the federal government and, and state governments need to adjust to roll out an, a coordinated effort instead of a, a patchwork approach? Yeah, I think um, a lot of the states are really rising to the challenge. Uh, they've had to because there, had to, there just doesn't seem to have been a coordinated plan from the federal level. And that's problematic because even though um, several states are doing their best and even though several states are, are forming their own little mini um, coordinated uh, groups of states, we're now in a situation where states are having to bid against each other for dwindling supplies against the federal government too. And there's only so much I think that states can can really do on their own without that kind of central support. What this crisis, which really is unprecedented in our modern times, what it demands is something like the Apollo program, like a, a gathering of the best minds from lots of different fields to find clever ways of dealing with this pandemic. And no such program currently exists. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's leaving a lot of state leaders in a big lurch right now. Well, at this point, most states have implemented stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders through April into May. Uh, for now, Illinois' stay-at-home order is in effect until April 30th, like the federal stay-at-home guidelines. What are we hearing from experts about lifting these restrictions? Lifting restrictions by the end of April would at the end of April would be a very bad idea. Um, we still need to shore up um, our ability to defeat future rounds of this pandemic, and we are not anywhere close to that. It's really important for people to realise that what we're all going through, these stay-at-home orders and all the social and economic upheavals that have ensued, that's not about beating the pandemic full stop. That's just about getting past round one and buying ourselves enough time to prepare for rounds two plus. And we're not using that time right now. And that means that even when um, cases and deaths start to fall, we're still going to be vulnerable moving forward. Um, and, you know, this is where getting um, testing up and running, getting hospitals shored up, getting public health geared up, 
all of that is going to be important going forward. And if we rush to reopen the country, we're just going to be back at square one in a position once again of being incredibly vulnerable to this virus, which will still be around. When you talk about rounds two plus, what does that actually mean? What could that look like? We might think about future rounds of social distancing, for example, and we might be in a situation where for the rest of this year, at least, or perhaps until such time as a vaccine can be produced, which might take between 18 to 24 months, according to the experts I've spoken to, that society will not be on permanent lockdown, but we'll still have to maintain a level of um, strange distancing that we're not used to. Um, maybe there will be restrictions on um, mass gatherings, for example. Most of the experts I spoke to were very dubious to things like crowded sports stadiums or um, performing arts venues or, um, you know, summer camps would be a, an advisable prospect for this summer and for the rest of the year. And I think that's going to be a bit of a shock to um, our society and something that we need to start preparing for now. When we look across the country and we see this sort of piecemeal approach to the pandemic response, what does it mean when you have one state that extends their stay-at-home order and a neighboring state that decides not to? Yeah, I think it's going to lead to some pretty significant disparities across the states in how well they're doing with the pandemic at the cost to the um, lives and health of their citizens. You'll probably get into a situation quite soon where certain states have the virus well under control, others do not. There is obviously going to still be travel between the states. So state and um, places where the outbreaks are still um, raging on might trigger new ones in others that already had the virus under control. The only positive side to that is that America's emergency system does very badly in a situation like what we're currently facing, where everyone is, is dealing with the same crisis at once. It's much better in a situation where some places are hard hit and others aren't. And so the ones that are a bit safer can lend support and supplies and, and personnel to the ones that are more beleaguered. And that, that kind of patchwork is almost certainly going to be part of the country's future going forward. Ed, on, on Tuesday, President Trump announced he was halting funding to the World Health Organization and accused the WHO of mismanaging the spread of the novel coronavirus for not investigating the virus quickly enough when it emerged in China. What was your reaction to this news and what could it mean for the U.S.? I think it's clear that um, the World Health Organization has made some um, missteps in its handling of the of of this crisis, um, but I think punishing it by withholding funding is the wrong move. Um, and it, this this is a time when um, we're still in the early stages of the pandemic, when we need international cooperation in order to deal with it as it spreads around the U.S. and around the rest of the world. And hobbling the WHO at the this crucial time is it strikes me as being very bad policy and one that I think will cost the US on an international scale in the future. You know, the, the US um, was once seen as a leader in global health, a, a place that other countries looked up to and modeled their abilities on. And it now not only has 
relatively fumbled its response to this pandemic to a massive degree and has become a sort of cautionary tale for the rest of the world, but is now also doing almost like the reverse of foreign aid in its approach to helping the rest of the world deal with this problem. Um, so I, I think that this is going to come at a significant cost to um, America's standing on the global stage, health and otherwise. What's the role of local public health departments and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention during this pandemic? Theoretically, it should be a very crucial one. Um, the CDC, uh, again, is is um, widely hailed as being one of the greatest public health agencies in the world. Um, but they have been strangely silent um, during this crisis. Um, they have been absent from um, the White House press room briefings for a very long time. And I think that is um, both a a tragedy for the country because of the expertise that the CDC possesses, but also bad news because it, it hampers, the, it, it reduces the credibility of the agency among people working, um, among local leaders. Uh, public health experts I've spoken to say that they are getting calls from mayors and governors asking them for advice on the various minutiae of how to um, run their local responses to this crisis. Um, and those are questions that would normally be posed to the CDC and, and yet are being asked of other people, which hints at this this tension, this uh, this loss of of visibility and credibility of one of an agency that really should be at the forefront um, of, of our response. You write that much about the coming years depends on two characteristics of COVID-19 that are still unknown, seasonality and the duration of immunity. Break that down for us. Much has been said about the hope that the virus will um, abate in the summer. So many coronaviruses, the mild ones that cause um, common colds, tend to be winter viruses. And there was the hope that COVID-19 will behave in, in the same way. I think that's a false hope, um, largely because this virus is spreading through a world that is immunologically naive to it. So most people are susceptible to it. And I think hoping that um, seasonality will reduce transmission enough to get the pandemic under control, absent other control measures, is like hoping that a gentle rain is going to put out a raging wildfire when there's still a lot of tinder to burn through. Um, immunity is, is different. So that the idea there is that um, people who have encountered the virus might have some kind of long-lasting immunity against it, um, much as we have against a lot of other infections. But the question there is duration. So against the seasonal coronaviruses, duration of immunity is only less than a year. Um, against the more severe ones like the original SARS or MERS, it's a little longer. So if we assume that immunity to this new virus lasts for maybe a couple of years, that does affect our predictions of when future epidemics might recur, um, how long vaccine product protection will last once we eventually have it. Well, you report several countries, including the U.S., are now hoping to identify immune individuals with serology tests and right. affirm their status um, with these sort of immunity passports. Uh, unpack yeah. this for us. Theoretically, if people who have encountered the virus have some sort of immunity, you could test that by looking at the antibodies that would theoretically protect them against the virus. Those people could hopefully then be allowed to go back to work and do all the things that many of us can't do right now. 
There are a lot of problems with this idea, though. There are lots of different types of antibodies, and some are more effective at controlling the virus than others. Uh, typical antibody tests can't tell you which is which. We also don't know, even for diseases that we have a much um, like decades or over centuries worth of experience in studying, we don't know what level of antibodies confers immunity. So it's hard to assess that in a test. And also, this is complicated but and counterintuitive, but in a situation where the only a minority of the country has been infected, the number of false positives generated by even an accurate test will outnumber the number of true positives. So put it this way, if now I get a test to see whether I have antibodies against this new coronavirus, if the test says that I do, the odds that I actually have those antibodies are pretty small. And that might lead people to mistakenly think that they are protected and unable to infect other people when in fact they are not and can. So this situation is still playing out in real time. Scientists are still learning about the virus. We're all still learning how to you know, move through this pandemic. But you've said that COVID-19 could be, quote, a disaster that leads to more radical and lasting change. What kind of change do you think this could lead to? So think about um, all the ways in which our lives have suddenly changed. Um, so the the rise of um, teleworking, uh, work, flexible working from home policies, um, a lot of policies like um, better sick pay or, or, or childcare um, are, are, have suddenly come out of the woodwork um, in situations when institutions and, and businesses might previously have dragged their feet. And I think that what this tells us is that a lot of social change is possible very, very quickly when it needs to be. And people might reasonably ask, so why weren't such changes, why weren't such social benefits put in place in the before times? And I think there is an opportunity here amidst all the tragedy to reimagine what a better and fairer society might be like when people's health care, for example, isn't tied to their employment, um, when their employment conditions are more flexible around the, the other aspects of their lives, and, and to also recognise that a lot of people are living in positions of vulnerability, which makes them especially at risk when some when a disease like this hits. That's Ed Young of The Atlantic. You can read his latest stories, Our Pandemic Summer and How the Pandemic Will End at theatlantic.com. It's part of the free coronavirus coverage that The Atlantic is making available to all readers. Ed, thanks for speaking with us and stay safe. Thank you so much for having me. And that's today's Reset. For the latest on the COVID-19 crisis, tune to 91.5 or stream us on WBEZ.org. And keep your fingers crossed because it looks like the weather is getting a little bit nicer. Even a short walk, a wave, you know, a shout to a neighbor can make a big difference in how you feel. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.